0: Call the meeting sorry, to order. Oh, That's okay.
1: Just got me a little. Me too. <laughs> um, can we have the roll call, please? Yes.
2: Trustee Sorton? Here. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Charlan? Here. Trustee DeBreeze? Trustee Hernandez?
3: Here.
2: Trustee Jayensen? Trustee Lawrence.
1: Here.
4: So we don't have quorum.
1: Okay. However, we will um, proceed and not take any votes for the time being. Um, And I think, oh, let's have an introduction. Ahmad Azizi is here to sit in for Mike Moy. Do you know everyone else in the room? I do, I've been to quite a few of these
4: meetings. Okay, yeah, do you know, know the medical staff? I Chiefs. do. I know Doctor Magalong, Doctor Hearn. I haven't had the pleasure to meet Doctor uh, Chu. But oh, but okay. I've I've had interactions. So yeah, I know everyone here. Thank so, you. so
1: it's now you call us into closed session. It's mm-hmm. generally yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> All right. So, so the closed session is for consideration Either of the credentialing portion yeah. of the case right yeah. Okay. okay. Thank well, you.
5: Good.
4: It did, good. That was good. And I thought <laughs> that, um, <laughs> thank
2: you. It was good feedback.
4: I was going to a number um, just clarifying expectations yeah. and Thank you very much. I'm going to go into
3: the going to be your No.
5: Okay, very good. Thanks, be like a, this hour. morning yeah. yeah. you are crazy yeah.
6: Early
5: this morning. It's a, it's a yeah. you're I believe you because I saw the uh, I saw the idea. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Hey, like, yeah. uh, yeah, so you're yeah. you win. Yeah. Yeah. You get that award. Yeah. Yeah, today's award. Yeah. 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 <laughs> i will do it. I
1: try really hard to make all those. You know, typically the like, you know, secondary doesn't stay for closed session. It's fine. Right? Yeah. Oh my god. Know just just
3: just
1: you. Just
7: little, uh,
1: and that's her- uh, we what right? right? I have a now that, uh, I agree. And
8: it's and hard to uh, figure out why.
0: Yeah, It would be but right. we can do that after
3: six mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That was cool. The did know it. So well, I, yeah. I mean, oh, I totally yeah. agree. I think that's a good
1: idea. We're doing
3: this
8: whole thing. We have no uh, so uh, for, i boy uh, actually
3: okay, so we don't
1: this time except for
7: so yeah, so by so by I the have department. this like time something between five and seven,
2: and seven minutes. Minutes. So
3: whatever um, I rent. then then legal I oh. see her in
4: two weeks her so you're not going to talk about
5: it. That's it. she would have to talk to all of this to Okay. 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 So, okay. So, well, okay. Okay. so that was a i always but there you know, like points so be, It should a be a question, the down, the the down, the, uh, the is you know, how can we possibly get that And I do wonder, and I did share with that, does it make sense that if you bring regularly traveling, a tandem to do in case of emergency or patient care, but you can't it? to bring it up to you
3: guys. You need to so, it is does,
5: uh, 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 the need to have the flexibility of the patient care know uh, that uh, they're we we so place for in how they see uh, the right run you over the park. I start, but Michelle in the
2: hallway uh, <laughs> <only> on
0: that <laughs> She
2: doesn't know. you Okay,
5: I am. Um,
1: I'm kind of waiting. I'm vamping a little bit here because Michelle's out in the hallway on the phone. So, um, but we will come back into open session in a minute.
4: Just a Just Okay, great.
1: Alex, and you will show that during the closed session, Dr. Trustee Jensen arrived, and we were able to have a quorum. We were able to function. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Right. Um, I know I'm valuable.
1: Yes. (laughs) Okay. um, I'm not sure what to do. Shall we wait for Michelle, or shall we? I can't. Do you want me to phone? Do you want me to No, she's on the phone. I don't. She's had some kind of personal um, emergency problem right now, so. I do want to point out and we will well we'll get to it when we get to it so uh, do we need to do why don't we start with um, approval of the minutes I there I, I guess we can't really approve them until she gets here um, <laughs> okay Um, I do want to point out we are um, considering the minutes and um, because we are now back in open session and we are going to the consent agenda Um, the minutes show that we approved the emergency management operations plan and we did not. That one was pulled by Mike Moy but for some reason it didn't ever get back to anybody that it had been pulled and um, I think No one made a note about it, so it appears on here, so we have to remove that. Um, And then somebody needs to let Cheryl Barry know that it was pulled and what we want done with it because Mike pulled it for a reason that he didn't share with the rest of us, so it needs to go back to whoever he needs to have review it and fix it before it comes back here. Um, There are a couple of other little minor corrections like Mrs. O'Brien, I think, should be Ms. in all places, and a couple of other little things like that that I can point out to Alex. But other than that, do we have any other additions or corrections to the minutes? Nope. Can we? Do I hear approval?
0: Was last last time three thirty versus three?
1: Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's the other thing. That that should be corrected. It was at three o'clock on the minutes. Sorry. So with that, can I have, have a, correct. A, a, a motion to approve?
3: Move approval of the amended
1: amendment. Second. All those in favor? Aye. I'm all right, the uh, minutes are approved. Um, now going through the policies, I just want to point out that on the agenda, it says that all of these policies are systems policies, which is actually not the case. Mm-hmm. Several of them are just for the core, um, and some of them are systems policies. But you can tell by the grid at the end of the policy of which MECs it went through and when. So um, that shouldn't be too confusing. But I just want to make sure that's clear. Any questions about the policies? Do I hear a motion to approve the policies? So second. second. Okay. All those in favor? Aye. Policies are approved. And we can move on to the next item, which when I look back at my agenda, is a report uh, from medical staffs. So starting with Dr. Hunt.
8: Good afternoon. Um, the Medical Executive Committee of the um, AHS Corps met last week. There are a number of interesting uh, things that are going on uh, that I'd like to just give you some updates on. The first thing is that the Chartist Group, uh, which is a consultant group, has come in and has engaged uh, all of the medical uh, chiefs of staff um, to help with standardization before we implement the EHR. The main issue being um, we have a lot of different facilities that may or may not interpret the same processes in the same way. For instance, does every facility use the same pain scale, does every facility have the same order sets for pneumonias, et cetera. So the Charis Group is coming and and is starting to evaluate um, all of the different institutions to come up with some recommendations for us before we implement an EHR, it's actually important to do before we, regardless of what EHR we choose, this work is really important to get done sort of beforehand as the what they call it clinical standardization process so that's the first thing that's that we are engaging in the charters group just got here last week I believe uh, and is just starting to to get their process and their meetings going to to sort of streamline how everyone thinks about the same um, clinical conditions so that's the first uh, the first thing
0: and 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 how's the reception of that because I, I think this is grand so how you know are
8: I shouldn't have said that before I... No, 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 it's very, it's <laughs> very, it's great. I'm sure the reception's going to be fantastic. Um, but it's very early on in the process. I mean, part of it is, is that um, people are so excited to have any EHR that's that's comprehensive that actually goes over the entire system. Um, the nuts and bolts of exactly how we interpret the same pain um, scale, for instance, is, uh, I think, going to be less important. Um, but... Uh, People seem receptive so far, um, but it's very early on in the process.
1: I think the possible places are are when you have a lot of physicians who have their own preferred way of doing something, and those are going to have to be challenged, Um, but we haven't gotten to that point yet. Right. The needs of the many overwhelm the needs of the few.
8: Star Trek.
0: Yes, Star <laughs> Trek. Oh, Thank, you.
8: Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, the next thing we are uh, we are discussing actually is the, uh, the Wellness Task Force. Um, so wellness has been a, uh, a big project that we've embarked on over the last um, seven to eight months actually. Um, physician burnout and, and wellness and provider burnout has been really uh, quite, uh, it, it's very, prevalent in not only the media, but also in the medical literature. There's, um, the, the incidence of uh, physician suicide uh, among male physicians is about 40% higher than the national average. Uh, amongst female physicians, it's actually 200% uh, than the national average, uh, higher, and it's... Really? Yeah, absolutely. This it's is...
2: Uh, within the court? No, it's actually nationally.
8: nationally. So nationally, the rate of, 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 of physician okay. female physician suicide is about 200% the national rate of, of female mm-hmm. suicide. And
0: do they know why? I mean, are they ch- checking?
8: Well, uh, we believe it's because of uh, the resilience and burnout issues that, that um, part of it is uh, I think providers in general are, are feeling tremendous amount of burnout. I think that um, in some cases, uh, the gender specificity is, the, is that frequently female physicians have not only a lot of responsibilities um, at work, but also a ton of responsibilities at home.
0: What's wrong yeah. with you guys? You're <laughs> not a wagon here, Jesus!
8: Seriously. Um, <laughs> so I think, that's, I think that, that that drives part of it. Um, it's it's not only a, you know you you, you leave a full time job and you feel like you still have a full time job at, at, at home, which is quite relevant, and, um, and I think that's part of the process. Um, but So this whole discussion of, of burnout and resilience has been really prevalent, not only in the national literature, um, but also in the media. So we've embarked, actually, as a medical staff, to try to, to start to address it. Um, the medical staff itself has, uh, we just launched a burnout uh, survey. Wow. Uh, it's a national standard that's called the Basla, uh Burnout Inventory. And um, we, out of our own meager budget uh almost ten thousand dollars to to launch this for the medical staff uh it just got launched two weeks ago i believe um and so that's part of it and then the the second part is that the wellness we've we've convened a wellness task force which is not only uh, physicians the wellness coordinator out of the um, support services center uh legal hr um, and so we've just had a we've just sort of had one meeting so far but it's really positive, administration is very you know, willing and, 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 and focused on sort of us providing higher quality care because we're, we're less burned out, we're more resilient, we're more engaged. Um, and um, so we're, we're excited to, mm-hmm. to, to move forward on that. Um, there's a lot that can be done. Um, Stanford just hired, this is an interesting uh, aside, Stanford just hired a chief wellness officer uh, who's a physician. Um, so they, they felt as though it's, it's that important that they've created a C-level executive out of, the, wow. Out of it. Wow. Um, so it's actually, he's a, he's a really he's a well-known national um, speaker and um, researcher on physician wellness um, out of Mayo. Um, anyway, so I think it's fascinating that that's a chief wellness officer. So, not that we're there yet, but uh, we're at least having that same conversation. Um, operationally, we've had a lot of uh, really significant improvements over the last uh, month or two. Uh, the transfer center has been uh, doing tremendous work thanks to Dr. Swift, Mr. Chapman, um, and the transfer coordinators transferring patients um, both from Alameda and San Leonardo Hospital and to Alameda and San Leonardo Hospital. I think uh, it's it, it's shown tremendous um, um, increase in growth. The emergency department saturation guidelines, or the surge plan, is going into effect after Labor Day, I believe, September 5th. Um, this has also been in the works for you know, it has been, uh, we've talked about it for the last 20 years. And mm-hmm. finally this year, Mr. Chapman, Dr. Swift, uh, and the folks on the search committee have uh, have created uh, a tremendous tool that we hope will be very effective uh, for emergency department and hospital overcrowding search uh, situations. So that's great. Um, a couple of other final bits uh, where... Uh, Excuse me. Yeah, of course.
3: Um, what guidelines do you use now? I mean, how do you is it just up
8: to who it sort of? Um, this is actually more of a, uh, a plan whereby once you um, once you have a situation where the EDU is overcrowded every single department has um, uh, steps that they're supposed to implement at this point it's it has been less more it's been it's been more informal uh, we call meetings, and once we get super overloaded, then it's, 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 it's a disaster. We call an internal disaster, and lots of things happen. But there are a lot of gradations of, of, of surge and overcrowding that this protocol actually helps to address. There's a tool called the Needox tool, which is the National Emergency Department Overcrowding Score, NEDOCS, Um And it's, we're actually using that as our measurement uh, to get data to see how crowded we are um, on, a, on, a, on a every shift basis. Um, And then once we get into the more dangerous zones, then it's actually calculated every four hours, Um, and so everyone has a sense of whether we're in the the yellow zone, the orange zone, or the red zone. Um, So
0: So, so you you don't yet have data that will tell you the trends relative to times of month or um, days of the week, that kind of thing? We have
1: some
8: of that data, especially uh, when it comes to admits, but this is actually uh, this takes into account a number of different categories, amount of beds in the hospital, amount of people waiting in the emergency department waiting room, the amount of people who are, uh, are waiting a bed upstairs. So it takes a tremendous, it, it's, a, it's quite an interesting calculator. I see John
5: looks like he has a thought. I was just going to say, if, uh, to me, it, it's a more proactive than reactive. Right now, we react when the ED has a throughput concern and they're in, in, in a surge crisis. This is to prevent crises. So it has basically like the stoplight. It has green, yellow, orange, and red levels. Our goal is to stop it from ever hitting red and to prevent orange. Well,
0: I I know this may sound foolish, and I, I, I I believe it, but when I used to be working with the police department, they would do statistics and showed that the rise of activity on a full moon and there was some literature talks about the tides and the brain and all that kind of stuff which I don't know anything about but but there was related to that. So looking at looking at the data of when you see these surges and being able to put more people on board if you see a trend that says it looks to me like you know, the third week into the month we have we have this potential surge, then you you feel in with more people. But it's not that simple I
3: assume. Yes. Payday. It's yeah, it's
8: no, not. It's, um those, while that data is there for emergency department check-ins, the biggest question is is for the inpatient status and whether there are beds um, on the inpatient side. Oh, I see. The overcrowding is, is, is much more of a, it's a back door effect rather than a front door. Effect. I see. It's a back door to the, to the beds in the hospital rather than a who's showing up at the front door.
0: I see. Most people
8: show up at the front door and still get discharged. Um, and so that's really not an issue for us. It's more a matter of how many people are waiting in the emergency department with orders to go upstairs. And if it's five or eight, it's not a problem. When, when it passes
4: 20, um, then everything shuts down.
0: I see. Sorry for
4: my ignorance here. No, no problem. No, I, I, these are very important, relevant question. Uh, the ED over, uh, overcrowding, I call it seismic. You know, just you don't know what's going on. But I'd like maybe Dr. Swift, she can give a little bit blurb about the knee doc just so the board would understand what it is. Because uh, you can talk, like, in two minutes about it high level, what
7: what Sure, um, just to build on what Dr. Hearn said, um, you know, uh, I think it's clinically apparent to the providers in the ED anytime we're at risk because it's very obvious. All the beds are full or we have more ventilator dependent patients than the team can support. Um, this NEDUX tool, um, as has been mentioned, uh, takes into account um, a variety of factors that, um, you know, how many people are waiting in the lobby, how many people are on ventilators what is the longest time that somebody has had waiting for orders, so it's a much more sophisticated tool. Um, This is really a starting point for us, it will allow us to capture data um, and to look at trends over time. I think that it will also um, shine a light on opportunities to standardize on the inpatient service so that backdoor capability can be optimized and it's being launched at a time where it will, I think, match very well with the clinical standardization opportunities that we have in front of us for, for the new EHR. Um, as as uh, was mentioned, every category of staff member now has their standard work clarified, and based on the score and the, the color, they have their own escalation guidelines. Before, what was happening was the ED providers were calling for help. Highland leadership were activating a set of standard activities Um, and often the ED providers were not really aware of what was going on upstairs. So it allows us to capture data, have more precision around the type of surge and the type of, um, you know, is it an ICU problem, is it a med-surge type problem. Um, The new protocols that have been built will allow the ED providers to have more real-time Information position the nursing supervisor as a single point of coordination, and we'll have a more structured escalation uh, process going all the way up to Dr. Jamaladeen and the leadership.
0: And And, and, Dr. Swift, this all appears on a screen uh, during the during the process. Is that how? So currently, in the
7: absence of a single unified electronic health record, um, what is happening is the tool is going to be calculated by the ED charge nurse. They have it um, linked to Wellsoft, and John's team has designed a process by which the score will be calculated and it will be emailed to a select group of people every shift. As that score increases, then the number of the, you know, we'll start notifying people every four hours, and personalized text pages and notifications will go on, go forward as we reach internal disaster levels.
1: WellSelf being the ED um, computer system that they use for patients. Mm -hmm.
7: But again, it will allow us to be more proactive, and to be the goal is to prevent us from getting in every zone. Yeah, so, when we're nice. green, we need to prevent it from going to yellow. When we're in yellow, we need to prevent it from going to orange.
0: Great.
8: A um, couple small other little bits uh, at our MEC. We are uh, discussing the issue of sick call. Um, there are uh, there are times where we feel as though sometimes uh, sick call. Uh, some of our providers might impact the ICU uh, availability of beds or the ED availability of beds. Occasionally, um, it, it happens where we'll have seven or eight nurses call in sick, and it shuts down kind of, you know it shuts down a, a, a fair number of beds. And so we're just we're um, we're in the process of generating reports with uh, in conjunction with HR um, to find out sort of if that is if that are, those are significant trends happens in the ED it, it, anecdotally. It happens also in the ICU. So we're just trying to track down that information. Um, finally, we're also...
0: By individual?
8: Uh, yes.
0: Well, and also trending
1: for days. Trending for
8: days and dates. There's uh, uh, anecdotally, the, non, the, the non-paid weekend holidays. holidays are typically the worst. So, for instance, the Hallmark holidays that aren't, so Mother's Day, Father's Day, typically are not where
1: well, uh, they don't get they the don't happen, get holiday the time, time.
8: Um, so those are those anecdotally are the times when people tend to call in sick work um, so we're just trying to work we're in the very early stages of getting that data to, to, to look for that uh, finally uh, regarding safety and security mr. Chavin has been meeting with the safety and uh, the security and disaster committee um, to discuss um, ways to improve the security uh, and the sense of security amongst the staff. There have been a number of incidents, I think I mentioned at the last meeting where um, weapons have been uh, either held by patients or recovered by, uh, by staff members um, in the, the hospital and uh, we are just that the disaster and security committee is meeting with uh, Mr. Katman and members of the administration to come up with some recommendations on that. Finally, we're looking forward to that electronic health record and we're getting that physician advisory group ready. Um, that's about it uh, as far as our new department chair searches our new chair of anesthesia just started I believe about a month ago he's doing great um, and uh, the other chair searches are ongoing and hopefully nearing the end uh, for some of them all thank you
1: All right. Well, once again we're behind in our time um, so Joel should, can you report about Samuel sure uh, <coughs> uh,
2: I don't have much report um, if uh, anyone's uh, curious uh, I had a uh, shoulder surgery this morning. I was just gonna this ask. morning. And yeah, and this is not a bomb that I'm holding.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for coming.
2: Yeah. And uh, interestingly I was thinking about Sickle. You were uh, <laughs> tracking about uh, our pro, uh, provider Sickle um, physician Sickle. I cannot recall maybe that's tied into a uh, physician for now. we I
5: had never called you sick in 20 years. You can
2: tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges is that, well, we have a we have a backup
8: system. Uh-huh. Um, the residents have a backup system. The attendings have a backup system. The resident system gets a, a activated once in a while. Um, the attending backup system almost never gets activated. Yeah. Um, but there is no nursing backup system. There's
5: no system to Yeah, one to point that. to nursing. The two areas that he talked about, the ED and the ICU, um, those are the areas we have the largest nursing registry use. So that should tell you something right there, that if you do have a normal uh, or a regular employee call calling sick, they can barely fill their, their standard um, assignments now, let alone to call in somebody to take care of a sick leave. So that's part of it as well. So uh, ratcheting down um, the use of registry, nurse registry, and also to hold managers accountable to track attendance and to, to to handle chronic concerns with certain staff members,
4: we we have policies around this uh, that key is to apply them and you know and and make sure that the union is aware about these policies.
1: Correct. Right. Right. Just getting the data will be helpful.
4: The data is very helpful. So yeah. <laughs> the data. Right. Okay, so uh, we uh, have
2: uh, approved policy and procedure, and I guess it hasn't come to you yet. Uh, those will come to you uh, in the coming uh, weeks, so you can review them, and they will be ready for you to approve uh, next month. And those, those uh, we was a lot of work. Is uh, yeah, last time it was updated it was 2013 when we were part of Sutter, so was uh, ready to be reviewed and uh, many thanks to um, medical staff coordinators, Tara, and, um, and also physicians and, and uh, support personnel trying to get all this approved. And the other one uh, I think uh, Jean has uh, mentioned already, we uh, are embarking on uh, clinical st- standardization uh, in anticipating the uh, EHR coming and that's uh, just an ongoing project just started this week and that's it for my report thank you
7: video um we i have nothing to report from alameda we did oh that's right but we did um we we're also on the standardization uh, process for clinical guidance such.
1: good Dr. thank you i'm
8: sorry i have one more thing i'm, yes. I'm sorry i know where we're on schedule uh for the very first time all three medical staffs are having a joint uh, unified medical staff um, annual meeting dinner. It will be October 12th. You will all be invited. Um, it will be at the Greek Orthodox Temple of the Hill. Um, we've never had a, a dinner with all three medical staffs uh, in attendance. And uh, of course the uh, executive uh, administration will also be invited, obviously. Um, but uh, for any calendars, it's Thursday, October 12th. I'm in the evening. That's
3: our regular meeting.
1: October twelfth? Yeah. A Tuesday? It's a Thursday. Thursday. Thursday, sorry, sorry. God I... Thursday. So we
3: the
1: point here and Perfect. I may be all right. So thank you for for your reports. And the next item is report from Ambulatory Strategic Business Unit, Doctor Jamadi, Doctor Bavaria and Dr. Gupta is stepped out, but she will be back. There she is. This is Neha Gupta, who is helping Apollo with this project. Is that, And I'll let you take over.
9: Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, this is Dr. Gupta, who I'm really pleased to introduce. She is a practicing primary care provider in our K6 adult medicine clinic here at Highland Hospital and is actually also the medical director for our prime program, um, effective February, March 1st. Um, and in a few short months has brought a lot of needed um, leadership, structure, and success to that waiver program. Um, so I know we are always short on time, so I'm trying to break up all of the various quality initiatives we have and sort of thematically clump them so that you know every time I come, we can share stuff. And then I know there's a few uh, high-priority topics like access, which I'll touch on as well. Um Just in the interest of time, this is our overall dashboard, but I was going to come back to this unless anyone had specific questions on this um, to start with just one update around the quality measures is that for both third next available appointment and no show which we will be including both of those measures in our true north metric dashboard that you will be receiving we in the baseline reports that had been used internally for years we found a number of errors so i have spent the last month rebuilding those reports from scratch with our ITIS team and validating that data so by the next time I present we will have sort of much more accurate cleaned up time over trend data for both of those and those will be major initiatives to reduce both of the their next available appointment time as well as no-shows um, over the course of the next year. So apologies that we don't have that data ready for today, but I promise it'll be worth the wait and better than inaccurate what data. What we
4: have been seeing, is it better or worse in reality or no answer yet?
9: It's different. So, the definition for third next available appointment that AHRQ uses, which is the nationally recognized definition, is really the spirit of it is regular appointments. So, if I just call up and I want to see my regular doctor, how long does that take? And the way we had built the report, it included every appointment type under the sun, some of which were regular, some of which were urgent care. And so, you know, it, it skewed the data in multiple directions, sometimes better, we, we sometimes worse. Um, the no show report. Um, similarly included a lot of things that we don't, templates that we don't use or sort of erroneous uh, appointments that should have been cancelled but we're just left as no-shows so we've cleaned up a lot of that as well. So that will probably look better than before but also closer to reality. Great. Um, so maybe I'll see. are you sure? Okay. Um, so just the quality measures I was hoping we could go through this time are really the major screening efforts that we've been focusing on, um, you know, chronically, but also especially over the last year, and just show you some of the data from our sites and some of the improvement efforts, and then have Neha do a deep dive into one of these um, to really just show how we're using the prime waiver program to transform care delivery and really improve the systems of care that we're providing, So I think it's a good example of the story behind these metrics. So the first one is for breast cancer screening, um, and this is whether, you know, per the USPSTF definition, whether women age 50 to 74 have had a mammogram sometime in the last two years, and that's the definition we're using, although we recognize other societies have other targets for uh, mammogram screening.
1: USPSTF is? Right,
9: United States Preventive Services Task Force, which provides national recommendations around various screenings and how often you should do them and for whom and when. Um, so, you'll see the goal line that we've set for all of our quality metrics in ambulatory is the 90th percentile nationwide. So, I've told my team that by 2020, I want every single quality metric that we are tracking to be higher than the 90th percentile. Um, and anything less than that is unacceptable. So, the teams are making, Neha hears this from me every month. Um, the teams are actually making great progress. So, this is an area where the different colors res- represent our different wellness sites. Two of them, Highland and Eastmont, are already above the 90th percentile and have sustained that improvement. Over the course of the last year, Hayward has made some gains, and then the line in red, which is our Newark Wellness Center, uh, you'll hear a deep dive story from Neha about how they've made this progress because they really, you know, as we started showing this data throughout most of last year, were considerably lagging the other sites, um, and then you'll see that trend line have been going up every single month um, since. Can you, um,
3: uh, the 90th percentile? I'm even trying to turn look. That's one At the. Uh, you keep referring to the 90th percentile, but we have 71% here.
9: Yeah, so the goal line, which is the dashed green line, is the 90th percentile. And so that
1: what, being at approximately what? 71%. 71%. Mm-hmm. So,
3: so but, but what is...
9: Percent ninety percent What are those? What is 90% of and what is 71% So sorry, 90th percentile, so not 90%. But the percentile is sort of of all the organizations, you know, of like organizations oh. and Medicaid members across the country, what is okay. their performance? Oh, so the 90th percentile puts us in sort of the top 10% of okay. like plans, organizations okay. nationwide.
1: So
3: 71% of women in... Ninety-one percent of plans, or ninety, it, it, the ninety-first percentile plans are. If you them.
1: get seventy-one ni- percent of women, will be in the top ten performer, um, ten percentage of performers. Because everybody else does worse than that, right?
7: Yeah. So, one okay. no other just clarifier: um, can you give us
9: a ballpark of the actual numbers that this represents? For us? Um, yeah, yes, so we don't have it on. Do you know if I have to Find it in my brain. Okay. It's probably around. I think the total denominator for this metric, because it's only women, is probably around 15,000 okay. patients, of whom you know whatever percentage of those have gotten their mammograms.
7: Because it would be nice in the future just to let us know.
6: Um, it's great. I'm so happy. No,
9: no, and what, totally. What is the
6: magnitude <laughs> of that? Right. So,
0: Absolutely. So, it, so it has has the medical profession then just written off 30% of the women? The medical profession, or I mean, it, this is based off of current
9: performance, right? So the HEDIS benchmarks um, for what? But if the this 90th is the ninetieth
0: percentile, 90th percentile it reflects and we're at percent mm-hmm. of the population, or the women population. Mm-hmm. The twenty-five or thirty percent, and this is not. I, I'm trying to. I'm trying
6: to wrap my head around those numbers. Uh, so if you look at the 90th percentile over time, that that bar will move up every year. As every system gets better, the 90th percentile will continue to go higher Got it. and will continue to get more patients I, up-to-date on their mammogram I, rates. Good. I yeah, understand. this is current state
9: performance. So, like, colon cancer is a great example where, you know, the improvement in colon cancer nationwide has gone up every single year. And we now, you know, even though we're not doing great, are doing way better than we as a nation were even five years ago, 10 years ago. Any more questions on mammogram screening? So the next one is cervical cancer screening. So similarly, currently USPSTF guidelines recommend screening women for cervical cancer starting at age 21 through age 65. Uh, We've now started in recent years doing DNA co-testing to look for the HPV virus, which is the virus known to cause um, cervical cancer. And so depending on the results of those tests, women end up getting pap smears either every three years or every five years if they're normal. Um, And then if it's abnormal, it's a separate schedule. And so for the cervical cancer screening, the 90th percentile, uh, nationwide is 73%. You'll see our Eastmont Clinic has been doing a great job on this and has improved performance. Um, as is our Hayward Clinic, they are the upward trend line uh, that they really started putting you know efforts forward starting in March to improve their cervical cancer screening rates. Um, Highland and Newark, especially you know, are, are further below those trend lines, and both of them are working on improvement projects currently to bring those uh, cervical cancer screenings up to that goal line. I'm just curious why i think works, so you know. yes yeah, so we've you know we we've done a deep dive i think they did as part of this, they got a list of all of their patients that hadn't had cervical cancer and had a nurse who did 970-something phone calls to all of the patients who hadn't had their pap smears, and they actually found a 40% refusal rate, which is significantly higher than all of our other sites. So they're now I'm meeting with their leadership, doing a series of focus groups to better understand that. If I had to guess, when you see a refusal rate that's that high and outside of the norm, it usually... Implies a lack of sort of education and understanding on the behalf of the patient oh, as to why this is
7: important. It, it's a heavy duty culture. Yeah. I live in New City and that culture may have some serious education to go
9: through. Exactly. So I think there's a barrier, you know, both on the patient side but then also the provider side. They have Um, more male providers who I think often are not as comfortable talking about cervical cancer, you know, especially with patients in another language, et cetera. Um, And so we're doing a number of interventions to really break down that gap. Because I think if you can get people talking about it and really focus on the education piece, then the uptake will be much higher. It's an uphill battle when 40% of your patients are refusing.
1: So let me ask though, we don't get credit if the patient refuses. Correct.
9: That is why the goal, you know, is probably never going to be a hundred percent, because some patients are always going to refuse.
7: But but I I think what this tells us, though, I mean, look at how well some of the other campuses are doing. Um, it, you know, clearly there's some that have figured out the secret sauce and do it you know the way that it needs to be done. Whatever learnings can be transferred, and, and I think again, Newark is so unique. For all the reasons we just discussed, I, I would almost say it, it, it takes a major sort of strategic intervention, perhaps moving a female OBGYN into York <coughs> to replace or you
9: know, move people around. Otherwise... Yes, no, I 100% agree with you.
7: In terms
4: of, of women's health and uh, you say cultural competency not like, um, it's like cultural uh, addressing the issues because it's a very conservative community.
9: Yeah, and it has to be you know, at the point of when we have the patient. So if someone does a phone call, you make an appointment, but if the patient doesn't even show up to the appointment, it doesn't matter whether you have that female OB-GYN, so it's sort of when patients are there, for whatever reason, whether it's OB-GYN care or not, really um, finding someone that they can relate to you know, and talk point, to
4: stop them. <coughs> <when> <coughs> yeah. Pardon the interruption. Can we get
2: closer to the mics when uh, we we'll discuss Sure.
9: So the next slide is for colon cancer screening. So this is one where the goal line, again, the 90th percentile nationwide is 66%. Um, you'll see that Highland has been close to that goal for quite some time with the purple line, but all of our sites starting in about February have made major efforts to improve colon cancer screening. In current state, we do colon cancer screening in one of two methods. One is Uh, that patients can get stool cards that they take home, they put a sample of stool, they send it in annually, and it tests for blood, and if it's positive, then they get a colonoscopy, or some of our patients opt to go directly to colonoscopy, although we know colonoscopy is a limited resource, and getting patients in and doing that for everyone is challenging in our current environment, and frankly, many patients prefer the stool cards to colonoscopy just because it's easier, it doesn't require a procedure, it doesn't require sedation, um, and doesn't require the prep, which many, many people dislike. So I think we have some ways to go on colon cancer, but there are upward trends in all of our clinics, and compared to many other organizations in the area, we're actually doing pretty well on colon cancer when we got the statewide performance for Prime this year. Are
6: we adjusting anything on this, given the new data that shows... Um, young people are now showing up with COVID.
9: Yeah, I was just reading that study the other day. So, that we're for all of our screenings following the USPSTF guidelines, which have not changed yet. Um, so, the guidelines still recommend starting it, and I should have reviewed that first. We screen everyone between the ages of 50 and 75, unless you have a personal or family history, in which case the screening schedule is altered for those folks. So, you know, if the USPSTF evaluates that data and changes their recommendations, we would obviously update ours as well. Um, and then the last slide is hepatitis C. So I'm not sure if I presented to this group before, but I, there was a huge push from the county side, actually, to improve the screening and treatment of hepatitis C because we do know there's a lot of undiagnosed hepatitis C, especially in our baby boomer population, and now there are quite effective medications to really eradicate this, which can be life-saving and transforming for many of our patients. So as part of our health pack contract for the last year, there was a pay-for-performance incentive program around hepatitis C screening. And you know, I think this is a great example of where you know, targeted clinical you know, pay for performance efforts can really show market results. So when you look at our baseline screening rates, they varied by our clinic, Newark and Hayward were sort of, you know hovering a little bit below 40 percent. Um, and I think the blue is the average of the four clinics. Highland had been a little bit higher, and then Eastmount was right below that. And then over the course of the year, as we put alerts in, so now our patient visit summary, which is the sort of registry sheet that primary care providers get on every single patient at the start of clinic, and it shows what healthcare screenings patients are due for, we added hepatitis C alerts to those and so people knew, hey, my patient's here I haven't tested them for hepatitis C um, and you just see the straight line up and then especially Hayward, they were a little bit shy of their goal. so in May and June of 2017 did a huge push and they're that blue line that went straight up essentially in those last two months, so we met our Performance targets. This is an initiative we're still continuing. So we're still continuing to screen for hepatitis C and referring all patients who screen positive for treatment.
2: Uh, how are the treatment paid for? They pay for it by uh, for the Alliance, and for, for the self-pay patient? So we
9: see. I don't actually know if we've had a case of self-pay patients because almost all of our patients who've come the clinic either of health pack which is paying for this treatment or i'll meet one of the managed medical plans um so i'd have to go back and look i don't i can't recall a case that's been escalated to me of a self-pay patient you know that that was diagnosed with hepatitis c and needed treatment so almost all of them have been medicare managed medical or health pack which has been covering treatment
4: Uh, uh, I should know the answer, but uh, I remember we were very concerned about having the capacity to deal with the Hep positive. Are we handling this okay?
6: Yeah, and I think, you
9: know, I don't know why the... I are people treating in the community, but also it's sort of like once you treat, you don't necessarily need to follow these patients for a long time. So our hepatitis C clinic actually has a fair amount of capacity and has essentially no waiting list in current states that patients are getting in within a week. There is a sub-segment of this population um, that struggles to engage in care, you know, who is contracted their Hep C, may still have active substance use issues or mental health issues and that's the sort of remaining population that we're trying to figure out how to treat because that population may or may not be able to come to office visits every week and we may need a decentralized approach for them in the future. And the
4: HIDIS, Was this included as a HEDIS measure?
9: It's not a HEDIS measure, yeah.
4: I remember because it, it was discussed way back and then... yeah. Kay.
9: Questions about that? Okay. Um,
6: so I'm going to pass it over to Neha. Um, so, Dr. Bavaria has asked me to highlight one success story, one success story um, of our ambulatory clinics for one um, quality metric, um, and so I'm going to just do a deep dive on the efforts to improve mammogram rates at Newark. Um, so, as you can see on the left, Newark, Newark had... Um, their rate of breast cancer screening significantly lagged. The other clinics in within AHS as well as national benchmarks um, with the lowest rate at 63% um, a year ago in July 2016. And looking at how mammograms are ordered, um, the burden of doing mammogram orders, which many other places like Kaiser, et cetera, have shifted to non-providing, non-provider staff. Um, That burden was entirely on providers at Newark. So 100% of mammograms were being ordered by providers.
9: I'm just gonna add, you know, in the context of a primary care visit where at that time Newark had 15 minute appointments, they've now moved to 20 minute appointments, but if you have to manage 10 chronic conditions, do med rec, tell the patient everything they need to do with all of their various issues, address their you know, urgent cold that they came in with the same day, um, and the broken foot that they had, you know, or ankle sprain a few weeks ago, remembering to also order the mammogram and squeeze that in and describe the importance, you know, I, I think was just really
6: challenging for a lot of our providers. Um, so in in different systems, it can be different people. Um, I'm going to highlight what we've done here at AHS, which is having um, medical assistants who do the entire intake and discharge process for patients um, take the ownership of ordering mammograms here. Um, but I think in other clinics, um, it's not always a medical assistant. But it's Wait, not. When a we get the staff. health
0: record, will they will will that automatically give? I mean, my only reference, frankly, is, is the Kaiser and, and relationship to their notification of mammograms, etc. and you really get a printout, and it shows your mammogram is due, you know, and, and I do believe there's a certain degree of, of personal responsibility, but they remind you, you know, so I'm trying to understand, and I know it's not the provider who does that.
6: So. Right. Epic my understanding has the capability of alerting patients through the portal when when you're due for your flu vaccine or your mammogram or your Mm -hmm. pap smear and all of those things. Our electronic health system allows notification for the provider that certain Mm -hmm. health screenings are due but not the patient patient, um, in current state. Um, there are many um, strategies that were taken throughout the system and at Newark uh, to improve mammogram rates, but I just wanted to highlight three for the purpose of this discussion. Um, the first is the, the use of the electronic health system via standing orders to equip medical assistants to order mammograms. So this is not um, showing up super well, but on their intake screen, there's a little click where the MA can click a standing order and then click on the button that says mammogram and it pulls in the ICD-10 code so that it gets billed to insurance correctly and then populates the order screen that then gets processed for mammograms to be scheduled. Um, And so that makes it just two clicks and then the mammogram is ordered for the medical assistant. Um, the second big chunk of work to improve uh, mammogram screening rates as well as a number of other quality ni- initiatives in the clinics was the development and approval of standard work. Um, I don't expect anyone to read this here, but it's just to demonstrate that it's a two-page document that highlights every single task that is expected of the medical assistant um, at intake and why. Um, with detail and timeline, so this takes five minutes, this takes one minute, this takes two minutes, um, so that the medical assistant knows what's expected of them, that their managers can review what they're doing and audit that the standard work is being done, and to ensure that we have a sense of roles and responsibilities and everything that's in the scope of the medical assistant versus the provider. Um, So that was approved in, when did we approve the standard work, April? March or April, yeah, something like March or April. Um, And then the third um, major transformational strategy was the use of an auditing and feedback tool. Um, So this graph um, in sort of picture number three is a picture that shows by clinic site, the percent of mammograms that were ordered by the medical assistant versus the provider um, from January through June. And what you'll see on the left is that Highland um, has had their MAs order mammograms for a long time, but all of the other clinics were not really ordering we're not having their medical assistants order mammograms in the beginning. Um, and so this data got shown to every single clinic every single month from January through June. Um, and as a result, uh, mammogram rates really started to take a climb. Um, about four months ago. So you can see sometime in February, we were on 63, 64%, and every month since then, the mammogram rates at Newark have been climbing. They're not quite at the 90th percentile, but they have been rising. Um, and the rate that the percentage of mammogram orders by medical assistance versus providers has also shifted as well, and that seems to have really driven the boost
4: union issues
6: making this happen um, so there was precedent for the Newark change um, at Highland I don't know if there are union issues when this was rolled out at Highland you may know, think from a technical
9: perspective every this entire workflow is well within the scope of practice for an MA so it's not a violation of any standards in that sense I think at Newark, actually, this was very well adopted, and they were one of the early adopters, and you saw that in the rise in rates. We have other sites where there are other issues outside of this involving the union, and so this got rolled into those other issues, um, and all of those are being addressed
4: collectively. I haven't been to Newark for a while. Are we displaying the data at the sites? We are.
9: Yeah, so each site is printing out, because we're still tracking this, and um, on a monthly basis, you know, how is your site doing compared to the other sites?
4: At the site itself
9: it? yep. They have a busy wallet. Each of the sites,
1: and the, once it's entered by the MA, does it have to be co-signed by the physician? It's it's a legal order. Yep.
9: And we actually had an AHS policy that was passed before I even joined the organization, so you know, over five years ago, that allowed MAs to do cancer ordering. It just that policy had never been implemented, and people weren't really utilizing it. Um, and I think you know this is just one minor example, but you can imagine the amount of work effort that goes into every single one of these improvement projects. But I think they're really important steps towards team-based care. It is a definite culture shift. You know the providers at this organization have been heroic for a very long time and held on to everything. You know which is great, but if we're really going to drive the needle on quality metrics, we have to do it as a team. And I think that really means shifting work to the people you know who are working to the top of their license to provide that care. And this is you know one micro step in that direction.
3: I think um, the the, the um, standard workflow that that document. it's really it's a good document not not only does it come up for the for each patient and eventually you know it'll just be kind of a rote routine thing but I like that it includes why for the medical assistant you know they may want to take a shortcut or you know think I I, you know I I can move faster and the doctor will appreciate if I get more things done but having that on there why is this necessary why is it important that's really Good
9: idea. And I will say we can't take credit because the original AHS template didn't include Y and we did a site visit to Contra Costa and they had Y and so we just stole their entire mm-hmm. column and adapted ours because it really we've gotten great feedback on that piece of sort of you know, really realizing the importance and providing meaning for these tasks that you're doing. It's
3: an ancillary clinician a long time ago I can
6: approach you. <laughs> Um, as a corollary to that, we've also um, embarked on training for medical assistance, and this is particularly taken place at Highland, where the medical assistants learn about breast cancer screening and why and what happens when something abnormal is found, et cetera. And it's gotten really positive feedback from medical assistants to really understand what they do and why. So
0: It validates your right. your job. It makes your job much more valuable. Yeah.
3: It
6: probably
3: increases loyalty to the
9: organization, Absolutely. and, you know, it, that's great. Yeah, and some of our sites, the same-day clinic has actually also joined on the bandwagon, even though they're doing more urgent-type visits. Um, and their MAs had, you know, we should have had the quote slide in here, but they love this and have really felt that this allows them to provide direct patient care in a way that they weren't um, before, and the experience has been incredibly positive from that group.
0: Congratulations. Step one.
9: I know. Um, And then this, I know we're almost out of time, but the patient experience slides, we are currently... Working with Prescaney to really clean up our provider directory, similar to the TNA and no-show reports, there are best practices that Prescaney has recommended for how we survey our patients, which providers to include, which providers not to include. And our provider directory, frankly, has not been updated in a very long time. And the way we've received data has not been updated in a very long time. So we have an entire working group in ambulatory doing a deep dive to look at, you know, How do most organizations do this? How do we need to get them the right data so they can survey the right patients and get us meaningful data back? So, once we clean that up, I anticipate a lot of our baseline data to change. Um, And so, some of these, sorry, they're not projecting so well. We will work on improving these slides for the next time. You know, I think the major takeaway is that for most of the domains by site, all of the trend lines, for the most part, are relatively. Flat. Um, you know, there's some uptakes in some areas. It's hard to know if that's meaningful or not, but as we undergo our ambulatory transformation, my expectation would be that a lot of these would follow.
3: And just back to the previous slide and back to the, the issue of, you know, having support from the MAs and having them understand the whole c- continuity of care. I noticed that care coordination ranks the lowest in most of the, the sites. And so that would tend to rise as you have more pe- more of the um, care providers' understanding and being, um, being supportive and, and brought into the process.
9: Absolutely. Great. Any other questions about anything related to ambulatory? No.
1: OK.
0: But, but it was a big step one, so you should give yourselves some <laughs> big
1: credit, really. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so I think we are down to the last couple of things. We have, uh, we're not going to be discussing calendar issues today, and so a report from legal counsel on uh, the session. Okay. And,
4: In closed session, the board approved the credentialing reports from each of the medical staffs and discussed reports regarding matters that may significantly expose AHS to litigation.
1: Okay, thank you. Were there any requests for public comment? No comment. All right. We are adjourned. Thank you for coming. Thank you. you. Nice
3: meeting you.